in your hands right now, you are receiving something that I, that I treasure very much. Uh, you're receiving a short snippet of what Tacoa Missions is about. Uh, Tacoa Missions is a missionary training school, yet really it's an outpost center in New Hampshire. And God has blessed us with a group of young people that have dedicated themselves to missionary service for a year, at least a year, dedicating themselves to serve God in and out of the city. And in your hand, you'll just, you can read it through. We have the education program. We have a media center that we're putting up. We have a health program that we're developing. And we have an agricultural program that I'm excited about. You know, we have an agricultural specialist that can make things grow out of rocks. I mean, he's that good. He's that good. I mean, he's an excellent, excellent agriculturalist. And what you have in your hand is an answer to prayer. My wife and I started to co-emissions in our house. It was me, she was one of my students, and two other young people. And from that embryonic stages, God has developed it and he's grown it and it's going all around the world right now. And I'm excited about it. I'm just going to give you my little prayer request. My prayer request is within the next month that Tacoa Missions will own its own property. Is that all right? No, nobody agrees with me? Anybody agree with me? Is that okay? Amen. Tacoma Missions wants to own its own property. We're looking to establish this center in the Northeast. There is nothing like it there presently. You guys have a lot of schools out here. You have Amazing Facts, you have Weedmeyer. The list could go on and on and on. In the Northeast, like I said, we need help. Amen? My prayer is that we could establish this school and the funds can be raised so we can purchase this property in the next month. I know somebody in here could write one check and we can get our goal. Finish. Our goal is $500,000 by November. If you would like to donate to that cause, whether it's a dollar, two dollars, ten dollars, five thousand dollars, please write your pledge or put your donation right inside that little envelope and you can give it to me before you leave. You don't have to wait to mail it in. But if you want to go home and move some funds around and write that check for 50000 and then send it, we'll wait for that too. Amen? But God is going to bless us. And when he does, I'm going to make sure that he gets all the praise, the honor, and the glory. How, do, how many of you believe that we're living in the last few hours of earth's history? How many believe that? Do you know that we're told that if we're going to finish this work that the medical missionary work connected with the outpost centers in our schools, she calls it the mystic stone. Did you know that? Did, she, did you know that she called the sanitary work the mystic stone as if connecting it with that rock that is cut out without hands that smites the image at his feet? We're not going to finish the work without outpost centers. So I want you to prayerfully ask God what he would have you to give to help support and establish an outpost center in one of the most populous sections in this country. But enough about that. Let's study the Bible. You ready to study? 
Father in heaven, Lord, I want to thank you for your grace and your mercy. I want to thank you for never giving us what we deserve, but giving us what your dear son does. And Father, as we're about to open the Bible, we ask for wisdom that is beyond our years. We ask for clarity of thoughts and feelings that reflect your own. And I pray, Father, that when we leave this place, we will not leave the same, but we will leave here empowered to finish the work in this generation. We pray this in the name of Jesus and claim the merits of his holy and most precious blood. Amen. Amen. Last night, we began our series. As I told you, it's normally a whole semester at my school. It's usually a week of prayer, seven days, an hour and a half per session, but we're going to do it in four days. So apparently I'm going to leave something out. But what I want you to do, don't believe anything that I say. Is that okay? I want you to take pen and paper, write down what is being stated, and be like the Bereans and go back to see whether or not what I'm saying is actually true. Now, we're dealing with the subject matter of the glorious holy mountain, and today's specific subject is the desire of nations. Our key text is found in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 9. Please open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 9. And again, we're going to sing the verse, not because I have any singing abilities, because that is not the case, but it's because it helps us remember the principal subject matter of what we're covering. Ecclesiastes 1.9. If you remember it, go ahead and sing it with me. The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be. Are you ready to sing now? Please sing with me. I feel alone. Let's sing it together. The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be. Okay, very good. I already know that you're wonderful Bible scholars, So I'm only going to ask you the question to bring it to the forefront of your mind. The thing that hath been, is that past, present, or future? Very good, past. The thing that shall be, is that past, present, or future? The thing that is done, is that past, present, or future? Present. Now, I want us to go to Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 15. Notice again here what the Bible says. We are simply laying a foundation for our continued study. Ecclesiastes 3.15 says, That which hath been is now, and that which is to be hath already been. And God requireth that which is what, my friends? Past. 
So here's very simple. If I want to understand what is going to happen in the future, then all I need to study is that which has happened in the past. And if I need to understand what is happening presently, what I really need to study is that which has already happened in the past. Because if I can understand the past, I can understand what God requires of his children today. Does that make sense, everybody? But let's go a little further. I want us to go to Revelation chapter 1, and we're looking at verse number 8. Revelation chapter 1, beginning at verse number 8. Please notice here what the Bible says. Revelation chapter 1, beginning at verse 8, the Bible says, I am Alpha. I love that name. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, is that past, present, or future? Is that past, present, or future? Present. Which was, past, present, or future? Past. Which is to come, past, present, or future? So it seems to me that God himself is saying, I am both past, present, and will be future. There's nothing that has happened that God has not had his hand in. In fact, when I'm studying the past, I'm not simply studying for information's sake. When I'm studying the past, I'm looking to see the hand of God and how he's operated with his people in the past. When I want to understand what is happening today, all I must do is look at the character and person of God, and as I see how he operates, then I can understand what he's doing presently. Does that make sense, everybody? Now, if, if this is making sense to you, let's go to our next point. Education, page 190. Very simple point, but it's a very important point as we're seeking to understand basic principles for our Bible study. Education 190, second paragraph says, the Bible is its own expositor. Scripture is to be compared with what? Scripture. The student should learn to view the Word as a whole and see the relations of its parts. He should gain a knowledge of his grand central theme, of God's original purpose for the world, of the rise of the great controversy, and of the work of redemption. If you want to know what you should study, somebody says, Andre, what should I study? Well, here are four basic points in the Bible that will cover you from Genesis to Revelation if you just study these four points. It goes on to say, he should understand the nature of how many principles? Two, he should understand the nature of the two principles that are contending for supremacy and should learn to trace their working through the records of history and prophecy to the great consummation. What is the great consummation? That's the second coming. The great consummation is the second coming. So I should be able, when I open my Bible and I'm studying, I should be able to trace through history, from the beginning of time all the way to the second coming, two powers that are contending for supremacy. Now, as we keep reading here, notice what it says. These two powers are contending for supremacy. We should see how this controversy enters into every phase of human experience, how in every act of life, he himself reveals the one or the other of the two antagonistic motives. And how whether he will or not, he is even now deciding upon which side of the controversy he will be found. We made this plain last night. In other words, there is no such thing as a timeout. 
There's no such thing. God, you wait right here. Devil, you wait right here. I got to figure things out. No such thing. Every decision we make, every choice we make, we're making it either for God or against God. Whatever we put on, we say we're glorifying God or we're glorifying ourselves. Whatever we put on our plates, we're either glorifying God or we're glorifying ourselves. Whatever or however we preach is either glorifying God or is glorifying ourselves. There are no middle ground. There's no time out. Notice what else. Now, now that we have these principles in mind, we're looking at the Bible as an entirety, as a complete whole. We're ready to continue our study. What is our acronym, my friends? What is our acronym? Temple. Temple. The T represents the presence. The E represents execution of judgment. The M represents major executioner. The P represents presence departs. The L is last remedy. And the E is expected gathering. Now, yesterday we began to look at this acronym under Solomon's temple. And we saw that that T, the presence, is when God himself moved into the temple. Is that right? When God moved into the temple, when the glory of God moved into that temple, was the priest able to minister in that temple? No, he was not. When God moved in, there was no priest that was able to enter into that temple. No man could enter into that temple. God was now dwelling in the midst of his people. I think that's awesome. I tell you the truth. If there was one thing that I would desire above all else, it would be to be in the presence of God and never, ever have to leave his presence. Consider this. Moses was in the presence of God He drank no water and ate no food, but he came down just as healthy as when he went up. Do you hear what I said? Moses, being in the direct presence of God, did not need physical food and did not need the water because God himself was his food. Did you hear what I said? God himself was that water. This is one thing I would desire. That's why the psalmist says, one thing have I desired of the Lord. That would I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. That will I seek after. You ever ask yourself the question, why that's the only thing that he wanted? Why that's the only thing he desired? That's his focus, just to be in the presence of God. I wonder if that's your focus, where that's all that consumes you. It's to be in his presence when nothing else matters. But here, the people of God have the privilege of having God in their presence, but there's something, and we talked about it, there's something that caused God to have to leave the people and leave the temple that they made for him. Does anyone remember at least one thing that they did where God said, I have to leave because of of what they've done? Any one thing? Idols. They built idols. They put idols where the sacrifice of God was supposed to be. Anything else? That's right. They didn't listen to the prophets. Even in those days, they had a hard problem with the spirit of prophecy. Hey, there's nothing new under the sun. You understand the idea? So they didn't listen to the prophets. They built up idols. Oh, I didn't read this yesterday. You have to look at the verses that I have there on the screen. They, in fact, began to violate the Sabbath and no longer kept the Sabbath holy. It got so bad. In fact, I want to read this one with you. Go with me to the book of Ezekiel. 
the book of Ezekiel, chapter 8. Now, the, Ezekiel was called to prophetic office around the year 592. Jerusalem is laid waste in 586. So six years before Jerusalem is completely destroyed, Ezekiel is called to prophetic office. And you'll find out in Ezekiel chapter 8 and beginning, and let's begin at verse number 10. There are several things that they've done, but we're going to start at verse number 10. Notice what the Bible says in Ezekiel 8 verse 10. The Bible says, So I went in and saw, and behold, every form of creeping thing, and abominable beast, and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed upon the wall round about. And there stood before them seventy men of the ancients of the house of Israel, and in the midst of them stood Zazaniah the son of Shaphan, with every man his censer in his hand. And a thick cloud of incense went up, then saith he unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen what the ancient of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the chambers of his imagery. For they say, The Lord seeth us not, the Lord hath forsaken the earth. Tell me something. What is the chamber of imagery? That's your brain, that's your imagination. See what every man does in the dark when nobody's looking. Listen, friends, you can come to church and play the game all day. God looks at the heart, does he not? Somebody says, don't judge me. Listen, listen, listen to me carefully. You may say, don't judge me on the outside, but it's much more difficult to say that to God, to say, don't judge me. Is that right? Because when God sees you, he sees you as you are in all its practicalness. And it ain't pretty. See what every man does in the dark when nobody's looking. When I'm at home, what am I watching? But when I come to church, I look real handsome. I look beautiful. But they're practicing these things in the dark. Notice what else it said, verse number 13. He said also unto me, turn ye yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations that they do. Then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. And behold, there sat women weeping for who, my friends? Tammuz, a false messiah, a false Christ. They're weeping for a Tammuz. They have the 40 days of Lent. That's where this came from. Look at verse 15. Then said unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and behold, at the door of the temple, between the porch and the altar, were about five and twenty men with their backs toward the what, my friends? Towards the temple of the Lord, and their faces towards the east, and they worship what, my friends? Pay attention carefully. Pay attention carefully. I know people use this the wrong way, but I'm going to use this the right way right now. This verse, when I first read it, I actually began to cry because I understood what it was saying. Do you know that this is the last sin that is mentioned before the ceiling angel comes in the next chapter? Do you know that this is the last sin? What is the last sin? Where they turn their backs on the sanctuary. They turn their backs on the house of God. They turn their backs on the very character of God. They turn their backs on the truth of the sanctuary. And they begin to worship the sun. The thing that have been is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. In fact, the situation gets to a point. You go to Ezekiel chapter 11. 
Ezekiel chapter 11. I want us to jump down to verse 22. Pay attention to the Bible verses. For what I'm speaking to you is a reality. This is not a game. I'm not playing any jokes with you. This is a very serious matter. Ezekiel chapter 11, look at verse number 22. Notice what the Bible says. The Bible says, Then did the cherubim lift up their wings and the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them above, and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city. What city? This is Jerusalem. Went up from the midst of the city, stood upon the mountain which is on the east side of the city. So now the presence of God, which normally resides in the city, which resides in the most holy place, that presence, that glory, that person of God lifts up, goes outside of the city, and sits on an east mountain. On an east mountain. Pay attention, my friends, for we go yet a little deeper. Keep that in mind. Now I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you a question. I want you to think. Yesterday we read about a power that took the people of God captive. What was the name of the power that took the people of God captive? What's the name of that power? Babylon. From what direction, from what direction did Babylon come? What direction? The north. Very good. So my main executioner, my major executioner is Babylon. He is the king of the north. He comes and captures the people of God because the people of God have turned their backs on the only thing that validates them as a nation. Pay attention to me, church. They turn their back on the only thing that validates them as a nation. So the presence departs, and God now uses Babylon as a means of correction for the church. Listen to me. He uses Babylon as a means of protection. Now, notice what the Bible says. You're still in Ezekiel chapter 11. I want you to see something that I found very interesting. Now, the sanctuary is about to be destroyed. The temple is about to be laid to waste. And now watch what the Bible says now in verse number 15 of the same chapter. Notice what the Bible says that Ezekiel is commanded to say. Son of men, thy brethren, even thy brethren, the men of thy kindred, and all the house of Israel, holy are they unto whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Get you far from the Lord. Unto us is this land given in possession. Watch this. Therefore say... Thus saith the Lord God, although I have cast them far off among the countries, yet will I be to them as a little sanctuary in the countries where they come. Did you hear that? Okay, watch me. Think, because when I study the Bible, I pay attention to all the imagery. So watch what happens. Here is the sanctuary. This is where everybody gathers to worship. This is where God's presence is. God leaves the sanctuary, and the sanctuary is about to be destroyed. But God says, even though you're about to be scattered, wherever you're scattered to, I will be a little sanctuary to you where you go. Now, why is that important? Another word for the word scattering is the word shaking. Is anybody listening right now? Another word for scattering is shaking. In fact, let me just be very plain. When we have meetings like this, this is beautiful. We all come together. We sing songs. We hear preaching. Wonderful. But it won't always be like this. We won't always have this privilege. There's coming a time, my friends, when these type of meetings are going to be desired more than anything. Oh, for that good Christian music. 
Oh, we're going to, oh, I wish we heard that preaching like we heard it back then. No, no, no. We're going to be scattered, my friends. And God is promising, I will be to you as a little sanctuary. Pay attention. So the last remedy that God uses for the people of God is to actually scatter them. For it is difficult, now watch this. Remember, the people came from a far country to learn about the true God. But when they came, the guy was talking about how much money they had, how big their hospital was, how big their educational system was. Remember he did that? And instead of lifting up God, instead of extolling the living God, they were talking about how prideful, how wonderful their nation is. Remember that yesterday? Okay. Because these men came to the only place on earth where the character of God was trusted and they could not find the character of God amongst that king. God says, in order to stop confusing people, I'm going to shake everything up and I'm going to let the cream rise to the top. Y'all not listening right now. Because it's difficult. Somebody comes, oh, you're a Seventh-day Adventist. You eat this way. Why do you eat this way? So we can be healthy. Really? That's why you eat that way? Whatever you eat or whatever you drink, you do it all to the... So when I'm talking about the health message, I'm not trying to make healthy sinners. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? When I'm speaking about the health message, I'm putting that health message in the context of that third angel to prepare a people to stand faithful to God during the investigative judgment. And if I'm not teaching the health message in the context of that, I am simply teaching New Age health message. We are called as a distinct people to give a distinct message in a distinct time. And when we lose our distinctiveness, we lose our savor. So God says, in order for the truth to be exposed, I have to shake the church so that Daniels can stand before Nebuchadnezzar. I have to shake the church. So Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah can stand in the midst of the burning fire even though they've raised an image to the beast. My friends, God is preparing a people. The thing that hath been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. There's absolutely nothing new under the sun. Let's go a little further because I'm still in review right now. So here's some of the points. We talked about that. We're going to pass that. Let's go. I'm going to skip this. Run out of time. I feel it. Here, the remnant of God. Please pay close attention. Jeremiah the prophet says that the people of God are supposed to be in captivity for 70 years. So at the end of 70 years, the people are called out of Babylon to go back and restore and rebuild the temple. A remnant only returns to go and restore that which has been torn down. The people are comfortable in Babylon, so not any Levite goes with the initial group to rebuild the temple. Only a small laity rise up and goes back to rebuild that which has been destroyed, and a remnant is developed at the end of a 70-year time frame. Keep it in mind. Keep it in mind. I hope you're writing down things because literally, I promise you, you will not benefit simply by looking at me or this screen. 
I, I promise you, the times in which we live demand a more deep and investigative study. And preachers that stand in the pulpit should never be trusted, no matter how much you like how they preach. You need to investigate what they say. Now notice this. I'm going to take this same acronym, and now I'm going to apply it under Herod's temple, or we call it Zerubbabel's temple. Either one will be fine. We're going to take this same acronym, temple, and we're going to take that acronym and apply it under Herod's temple. Please think with me, my friends. We're thinking, all right? We're thinking people. I want us to first look at the book of Haggai, chapter 2, and we're going to begin reading in verse number 9. Haggai chapter 2 and verse number 9. It's one of those small books we don't normally study, but it's all right. I'm going to give you a few seconds to find it. Haggai chapter 2 and beginning at verse number 9, please notice what the Bible says. The Bible says, The glory of this latter house shall be greater than the former saith the Lord of hosts, and in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. So the latter house, the second house, is supposed to be more glorious than the, than the what, my friends? Than the former. Verse number three says, who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? How do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison as Nothing. So in other words, when you look with your natural eye and you looked at that first temple, that first temple was way more beautiful than that second temple. In fact, in Ezra chapter 3, it tells us that when they started the foundation for the second temple, that the old men began to weep while the young people were rejoicing. Isn't that strange? I began to think about it and make the application. You know, nowadays young people get excited about things that are not even really substantive while the old people are weeping because they remember the good old days. But here it is, they're looking and they see the foundation, they're weeping, but the prophet says that the second temple is going to be greater than the... But when you look with your natural eye, the second temple doesn't look anything like the first one. But notice verse number 7, and I love verse 7. Watch what it says. It says, I will shake all nations. And the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with what, my friends? Oh, this is beautiful. The first time I read the verse, I said, oh, I see what the prophet got the name of her book. Desire of ages, she got it from this verse. The desire of nations is going to come in. Who is the desire of nations, my friends? Oh, he's the desire of nations. He's the desire of my heart. It says Jesus is the desire of nations. He's going to enter into the second temple, and he's the one that's going to make this second temple more glorious than the first temple. So here's my question. If God's presence entered into the first temple, why is it so significant now that Jesus comes into the second temple and makes the second temple more glorious than the first one? You ever ask yourself the question? I ask myself the question. Anybody have an answer? I'll tell you why. It's because Jesus, when he comes in the second temple, comes in the flesh. Praise the Lord. Let me tell you something. 
If Jesus never came in the flesh, we of all people are the most damned people in all the earth. Jesus came in the flesh. He took on our nature. He walked in our physical frame, and he conquered every single solitary temptation, every single solitary sin, and he walked a victor in our flesh. Amen. And because he took our nature and walked in our flesh, the plan of salvation came nearer still than just the imagery in the first temple. Now the plan of salvation was in action. Jesus was in flesh. Jesus is walking amongst us. Jesus is showing us as an example what we were made to do. Listen, you were not made to be a stumping, stepping stool for the devil. You were not made to be a slave of the demonic, evil tendencies that Satan puts on his people. You were made to be a child of the king. I wish I had put it in here. I didn't put it in here. I'm probably going to put it in tomorrow. But there's a quotation I'm going to share with you tomorrow. You don't want to miss this quotation. Tomorrow I'm going to put it in here. You are going to see that there is a secret weapon that we've been missing out on. I'm telling you, it is so powerful. When you read it tomorrow, you're going to say, man, what have I been wasting my time being a slave to the devil for? Romans 6.16 says, Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. So Jesus walks in the flesh amongst us. And notice what the Bible says in John chapter 1. Notice what it says here. I, I love this. This is actually one of my favorite. I mean, everything's my favorite. But John chapter 1 is one of my favorite. You know, we say that in Callport. It's my favorite book, you know. In John chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, notice here what the Bible says. In John 1, verse 1, the Bible says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Watch this. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. Pay attention. Watch verse 14. Watch verse 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of, full of what, my friends? Grace and what? Listen to me. Listen to me. Listen to me well. Any man that teaches only grace is not teaching about the God of the universe. And any man that stands up and only preaches truth, 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 but does not preach grace is not teaching about the God of the universe. See, the God of the universe, the character of that God is a combination of both grace and truth. They are perfectly blended one with the other, and any separation of the two causes for a weak and enfeebled Christian. Now, there's a science to this. I ask myself the question, why does grace and truth have to be together? I'll give you an example. I think I gave this example before, but I'll give it again. Let's say, use your imagination. You can still do that even though you're over 15, right? Use your imagination for a moment. Let's imagine, if we would, a big black dog over there in the right-hand corner. Imagine that dog has not been fed. And let's say I have the truth, and I say to the dog, hey, dog, you need to drink some water. Tell me something. 
Will that help that dog? I think no, I, I think that would be a waste of vocal abilities. Don't you think so? What do I need to do in order to help that dog? Here's the truth. The dog needs water. So where's the grace? The grace says, I'm going to get that dog a bucket of water, and I'm going to take that bucket of water to the dog so that the dog can lick and drink that water. Is that right? So sometimes, sometimes, my friends, we only say truth, 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 and the people need some grace so that they can drink the realities of that truth. Any separation of the two causes for a weak and enfeebled Christianity, which many of us have fallen into. We preach grace, and we preach grace, and we preach grace, not understanding. In fact, in Vermont, they let out a man who was a pedophile. They knew that he was of the highest level of pedophilia. But they say his prison term was up. They couldn't keep the man in prison, so instead of the correctional system correcting him, they had to let him go. And when they let him go, they just made an announcement to the town, hey, please keep your children inside. The pedophile is out. Tell me something. Tell me something. <laughs> Would you let your children play with a man like that? No, you wouldn't let your children play with a man like that. I wouldn't let my children play with a man like that. I don't care how much grace you preach. I'm not letting my child play with that man. But the grace that is taught today relieves a man from prison without giving any correction in the man's life. They go in, oh, Jesus has forgiven me for my sins, but you still lie, cheat, still commit adultery, bear false witness, still watch the same movies, still go to the same place. The grace of God has worked no change in the people of God. So it's a grace without power. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called what? Children of God. Why? Why does he call us children? Because we look like him. Because we talk like him, because we walk like him, because we love the way he loves, we care about what he cares about, we are his children because we reflect the realities of God's heavenly kingdom. Now, I want you to hear me now. So the second temple is greater than the first temple because the second temple has the man Jesus walking in flesh amongst his own creation. I wonder, oh, I ask God sometimes, I say, Father, could you just take me back in time so I can see it? I mean, the TV shows and the movies, that don't help nobody. It's not even close to the reality of what the man Jesus was like. Sometimes I say, Father, please, give me a dream. Can I just see him talking on the mount? Can I just see how he interacted with children? Can you just show me how he did it? Do you know that the Holy Spirit, if you pick up the Bible and if you pick up the spirit of prophecy, he will show you the man Jesus like you've never seen him before? I was telling somebody today, my brother, I was talking to my brother today. I was saying, the way my life changed, I picked up the book Desire of Ages. And I began to read and read. And I began to fall in love with this man named Jesus. I began to read and read, and I used to listen to R&B and hip-hop and all that stuff, and I read and read. And then one day, I would, literally, I went to my room, and I saw the stack of CDs in my room. And I said, oh, I don't even listen to this anymore. I didn't even have a desire. It was like, it was gone. There's something about being in the presence of God that changes how you see and how you feel and what your desires are. There's something about being in His presence you see, the problem is, my friends, many of us are trying to be Christians without watching Christ. 
We're watching preachers. We're listening to audio verse. We're doing all, everything else that looks religious, but there's nothing wrong with watching preachers and listening to audio verse except that you replace Jesus for those things. Let me tell you, the best sermons that I've ever preached have been when no one has ever heard what I was saying. Me and Jesus. Me and Jesus by myself, agonizing with God. So Jesus walks in flesh. He's amongst us. Notice what the Bible says in Matthew 121. Matthew 121. Go there quickly. Matthew 1, verse 21. You know this by heart, actually. I know you do. The Bible says, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name. What's his name? Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now, I want us to look at something. We're going to eavesdrop on a conversation Jesus is going to have, but I want us to read Desire of Ages 27, paragraph 1. Please watch this. Pay close attention. Here it is. It says, for more than a thousand years, the Jewish people had awaited the Savior's coming. Upon this event, they had rested their brightest hopes in song and prophecy and temple rite and household prayer. They had enshrined his name, and yet at his coming, they what? Wait a second. Don't you and I sing songs about Jesus? Wait a second. Don't you and I preach prophecy? Yes. Don't you and I go to church, and don't we have prayer at our houses? Are those things good? Don't we have a name that we have enshrined? Yes, 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 yes. But we did all that, and still we didn't know him when he came. That's scary. That is scary. How is it that we could be doing all the right things and still miss him when he comes? The beloved of heaven was to them as a root out of dry ground. He had no form, no comeliness. And they saw in him no beauty that they should desire him. He came into his own, and his own received him not. Pay attention now. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, Providence had directed the movements of nations and the tide of human impulse and influence until the world was ripe for the coming of a deliverer. This is in the past. This is happening now too, right? The nations were united under what? Under what? Pay attention, my friends. Is that happening right now? Maybe you don't know anything about what's happening right now, but that's happening right now. One language was widely spoken. Is there one language widely spoken right now? Yeah, some of you guys don't look like you're Americans. But everybody in here speaks English. That's the one language widely spoken. It was everywhere recognized as the language of literature. From all lands, the Jews of dispersion gathered to Jerusalem to the annual feast. As these returned to their places of sojourn, they could spread throughout the world the tidings of the Messiah's coming. Watch this. The fullness of time had come, humanity becoming more degraded through the ages of transgression, called for the coming of the Redeemer. Satan, watch this, Satan had been working to make the gulf deep and impassable between earth and heaven. By his falsehoods, he had emboldened men in sin. It was his purpose, still is his purpose, 
to wear out the forbearance of God and to extinguish his love for man so that he would abandon the world to satanic jurisdiction. The devil is an evil, maniacal, no good, rotten scoundrel. Why do you serve him? That's his plan, to separate you from God. Now watch this. Satan was seeking, pay attention, Satan was seeking to shut out from men a knowledge of God to turn their attention from the temple of God and to establish his own kingdom. His strife for supremacy had seemed almost wholly successful. It is true that in every generation God had his agencies. Even among the heathen, there were men through whom Christ was working to uplift the people from their sin and degradation. But these men were despised and hated. Many of them suffered a violent death. The dark shadow that Satan had cast over the world grew deeper and deeper. Now listen, remember, Satan wants to turn the attention from the temple. Why turn the attention from the temple? Because it's in the temple that the plan of salvation is made plain. Turn their attention from the sanctuary. Turn their attention from the true manifestation of the character of God. Turn their attention from the realities of the investigative judgment. Make them stop believing in what God is doing. If we can do this, we can separate them from God forever. Wait, there's more. Watch this. The deception of sin had reached its height. All the agencies for depraving the souls of men had been put in operation. The Son of God, looking upon the world, beheld suffering and misery. With pity, he saw how men had become victims of satanic cruelty. He looked with compassion upon those who were being corrupted, murdered, and lost. They had chosen a ruler who chained them to his car as what, my friends? I want you to hear what the context of what she's saying. She's saying, look, they had chosen a ruler. And he's saying as if, I remember having this dream one time. And in the dream, there were some cars coming towards this bridge, but the bridge was out. And I remember in the dream having to come out into the road, and they couldn't see me on the side of the road. So I had to stand in the middle of the road and say, the bridge is out! I had to jump up and down in the dream. Rain coming down on my head in the dream. The bridge is out. The bridge is out. Do you understand that when Jesus took on human form, this is what he was saying to humanity. You have chosen a ruler that's going to lead you to hellfire. You have chosen someone who has lied to you about the character of God. Here, here, I am the reality of what you're looking for. The bridge is out. The bridge is out. Don't keep going down that road. Leave sin alone. It only causes sorrow and death and sadness. Leave sin alone. Do you know when husbands and wives fight? Listen to me. When husbands and wives fight in their homes, it is evident at that moment that God's Spirit is not there. When moms are yelling at their children, I told you not to do that, girl. Okay, for real. That face and everything (laughs) doesn't match the gospel. Somewhere along the way, as parents, we have forgotten that we cannot rule our children by force, but we must teach them to love what we love. We must teach them to to observe what we observe, to eat how we eat, to go where we go. My little girl loves what I love. 
well, at least for the most part. There's some things that she, she loves what her mom loves, too. We have to share her, you know. But Satan had chained the people of God to a train that was leading for destruction. Now watch this next quotation. It's powerful, my friends. Watch this. Bewildered and deceived, they were moving on in gloomy procession toward eternal ruin, to death in which is no hope of life, toward night to which comes no morning. Satanic agencies, listen, satanic agencies were incorporated with men the bodies of human beings made for the dwelling place of God have become the habitation of demons. The senses, the nerves, the passions, the organs of men were worked by supernatural agencies in the indulgence of the vilest lust. The very stamp of demons was impressed upon the countenance of men. Now, when I read that, I begin to understand why there's music that is played that controls the organs. That's why all of a sudden, in the middle of nowhere, somebody could be having an orgasm when they're listening to a song, my friends. I remember watching, somebody had told me that there were some Adventist people singing on this show called The Voice before it became popular. And these young men, Adventist young men, singing on this show called The Voice, and this lady listened to them sing whatever song they were singing. It was some worldly song they were singing. The woman said when they were done singing, she said, I just had an orgasm. What? Wait a second. An Adventist group of young men, who I don't know if they were taught or not, are singing a worldly song that this worldly lady says, I just had an orgasm. But we put it in our cars and act like it's nothing going to happen to us. We listen to worldly music all week long, and on Sabbath we put in the Christian music. Don't you find that strange? The organs of men work. Somebody says, oh, I'm struggling with my sexuality. What are you listening to? I'm struggling with being able to keep my hands off the girls. What are you watching? By beholding, you become what, my friends? If you want to change, if you want your life transformed, you need to take your eyes off the things of this world and put them on heavenly, spiritual, pure, holy things. And that which you behold, you become like. It's not rocket science. It's really not. We make it difficult. We lower the standard. But the standard is so high, it's so, it's so much above us, we can't reach it of ourselves. In fact, when we see the standard, we should say, oh, Lord, have mercy on me. I can't reach that standard. Please, show me, Jesus. Huh? But the standard's too high, so what we do, we bring it down. So we can at least see over it. Human faces reflect the expression of legions of evil which which they were possessed. Such was the prospect upon which the world's Redeemer looked. What a spectacle for infinite purity to behold. So all I'm doing right now, I'm simply describing to you the conditions by which Jesus entered into this world and began the process of the plan of salvation. He's entered into the second temple. The glory of God is entered into this temple. It is more glorious than the first temple. Now, in our acronym, we have the letter E. And my question now would be, the glory of God is now in this temple. Why would God have to execute judgment on this temple? 
Why would God have to do this? Let's eavesdrop on Jesus. In Matthew chapter 23, beginning at verse 33, notice what the Bible says. And remember, we're talking about Jesus, okay? Watch what Jesus says. Matthew 23, verse 33, the Bible says, Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Whoa, wait a second. This is Jesus? Is it in red in your Bible? That's Jesus talking. Is that right? Now, I wonder why Jesus would talk, you know, because Jesus is normally considered very kind, patient. So why is he talking to these men like this? Watch what it says. Same chapter. I want you to look at verse number 13. Woe unto the scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Verse 14, woe unto you scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. Verse 15, woe unto you scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. Verse 16, woe unto you, ye blind guides. Verse 17, ye fools and blind. Verse 19, ye fools and blind. Verse 23, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. Verse 24, ye blind guides. 25, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. 26, thou blind Pharisee. 27, woe unto you, you scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. 29, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. Who he has a problem with? He has a problem with scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. Why does he have a problem with scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites? Let's start with hypocrite first. What is a hypocrite? What is a hypocrite? He's an actor. Hippocrates, I mean, he's an actor. They had those little faces. And they would, you know, play something that they're not. Hypocrite. Why is he calling them hypocrites? Because they claim that they're something, but in reality they are not what they say they are. Scribes and Pharisees? Why scribes and Pharisees? These are the leadership, the rulership of the people of God. They're supposed to represent the character of God. But the people of all the world are looking for the truth of what God is supposed to look like. And when they see the scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, Jesus is upset with them because these men are supposed to have the way of life, but they're stopping people from coming to the reality of who God is. So Jesus is mad. He is upset. In fact, notice what the Bible says, still in Matthew chapter 23 and verse number 34. Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them ye shall scourge in your synagogues, and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zechariah, son of Barcaius, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, watch this, all these things shall come upon this generation. 37, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets. Wait a second. Did we not see this under Solomon's temple that the people did not listen to the prophets? Now we see it under Herod's temple. Jesus is saying, you have not listened to the prophets. Watch what it says. Keep going. It says, thou that killest the prophets and stones in that center to thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathered her chickens under her wings, but ye... Would not behold your house is left unto who? 
Wait a second. Do you not catch the verse? Did you see what the verse just said? It said your house. But whose house was it built for? Whose house was it built for? It's as if Jesus is saying, hey, you can do what you want with it. I'm out. Your house is left unto you desolate. Now pay attention because I'm going to show you something right now. So he says, your house is left unto you desolate. Now watch what the Bible says now in chapter 24, beginning at verse 1. The Bible says, and Jesus went out and departed from the temple. Did you get that or did you miss it? When I first read it, I didn't get it at first. But then when I read it again, the temple, Jesus went out and departed from the temple. Do you know Jesus did not go back into that temple? It says he went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came unto him to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, seeing at all these things, verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Verse 3, and as he sat upon the mount of, what's the mountain called? Question. Remember I read to you a few minutes ago when we first started, Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 22 and 23, the presence of God departed and went and sat on a east mountain. Nobody's listening. Are you listening right now? So in Ezekiel, the presence of God raises up and goes, sits on the east mountain. And in Matthew 24, Jesus walks out of a temple and he sits on the Mount of Olives. I wonder what direction the mountain is from the temple. It seems to me the thing that hath been is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done. There's absolutely nothing new under the sun. So Jesus gets up, he goes and sits on the east mountain, and he says, your house is left unto you desolate. Why is the house desolate? Listen to me carefully. For this, if you don't get any other thing that I say going forward, I want you to get this one point. The house is left desolate because his presence is not there. Well, you think because the temple was destroyed in AD 70 that that was desolate? No, the house was desolate from the time Jesus said, I'm not going back. I'm not going back. When he does not go back, the house is left desolate. So let me ask you a question. I want you, I want you to listen carefully to the question, and I want you to examine the realities of what I'm saying to you. Is your house desolate? Is Jesus the focal point of your home? Because if he's not there, whether you feel destruction or not, your house is desolate. If Jesus is not the center of every action and every feeling, and he's not the focus of your joy, if he doesn't bring you the greatest happiness, then your home is desolate. Your life, desolate. Your physical frame, desolate. You must have his presence. You must have him. There's no greater joy. There's no peace. There's nothing without him, my friends. There's nothing without him. And I tell you the truth, because I have like two minutes left. I want you to see something. The book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 3. Pay attention, my friends. Pay attention. In Revelation chapter 3, beginning at verse number 14, you know what church we're talking about. What church is this, my friends? The Laodicean church. In Revelation chapter 3. 
Beginning at verse number 14, the Bible says, And unto the angel of the church of Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness. The beginning of the creation of God. Oh, I love how Jesus introduces himself to this church. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich, increased with goods, and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Question. If a man stands up in front of you and he's butt naked, and he says, I'm not naked, what would you call him? You'd call him crazy. You wouldn't just call him a liar. You'd call him crazy. A man said, I am rich and increase of goods. I am fully clothed. And you're like, brother, you need to put some clothes on, man. That's crazy. And do you understand that God symbolizes this church in this very condition? Rich, increased with good, in need of nothing. I am fully clad. I am, I'm wonderful. We have wonderful Christian values. We have wonderful structure. We're okay. And God says, no, no, you are lukewarm. You're neither cold, you're neither hot. You're neither on fire for God, and you're not like, man, whatever. You're not like that. You're just, you're just here. Another GYC. Great. Back to work. No change, motivated for a few seconds. I, I, I'm reading this to you for there's another point I want to bring out. Watch this. Verse 18. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich. That's a sermon by itself. And white raiment that thou mayest be clothed. That's another sermon. And that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous therefore. And what, my friends? Notice what the Bible says in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door. And what, my friends? Question. <laughs> I live on a mountain. And I know this might be an audio verse, so somebody might hear this. We leave our doors unlocked up there. My friends, when they come to my house, don't have to knock on my door. If you are owner of your house, you have a key to your house, you don't knock on your own door. Who knocks on doors? Visitors. Strangers. Strangers knock on doors. When I'm canvassing, that's what I have to do. I can't just walk in somebody's house, although I did it once. You have to knock. You knock because you're a stranger. He's knocking because he's a foreigner. Friends don't have to knock on my door. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, then I will come in and I will sup with him. I will fellowship 
Do you know that's God's great desire? It's fellowship. His great one desire is that his children would simply recognize him as their father. This one desire. My little girl. I remember my little girl. She's right there. She came out. She started crawling and stuff, you know. She would go to a shoe and call it daddy. She'll go over to a chair and she'll call that daddy. She'll call everything in the house daddy. And then she would come to me and she'll call me daddy. And I'd be like, nah, you don't even know what that is. One day, she was doing what she was doing. And I could recognize as she was doing what she was doing, her intelligence had increased a little bit, you know. And she came to me, and she looked me in my eye, and she put up her hands. And she said, Daddy. She understood who I was. At least in her limited understanding, she knew a little bit more to recognize that Daddy's not some chair. He's not some brick. She's not, it's, not a, it's not any of that stuff. Daddy is the one that will put up and take me in his arms, and he will take care of me. God of the universe, our Father, is waiting for His children to recognize Him as their daddy. It breaks His heart every time someone goes to a bottle and call that daddy. It breaks His heart when that female goes to that guy and calls that guy daddy when that brother hasn't done a thing for her. Breaks his heart when that young man sees that young woman and just chases after her, not understanding that in that chase will follow great darkness and brokenness, even though in the moment of pleasure it would feel good. The father's heart is broken. All he wants is his children to acknowledge him as their daddy. Bible tells us in Luke 19, verses 41 to 44, verse 44 says that the temple or the Jerusalem was going to be surrounded and destroyed. Not one stone was left upon another because they did not know the time of their visitation. Tonight, Jesus is visiting. Listen, when I stand and preach, I know I'm not that good. But I know that I've been called, and I know that angels stand on my left hand and on my right. And I know that Jesus says where two or three are gathered in his name that he would be in the midst. And I know that when we make this call this evening, that Jesus tonight can deliver and redeem you into the heavenly family and bring you back into union when you've been running away from him. So I'm going to make one simple call tonight. It's going to be so simple and basic. Tonight, Jesus wants his children back. Will you accept the call to be his children? If you accept that call to be his children, in a symbol of allegiance to the Most High God, I'm just going to ask that we kneel together and pray. Is that all right?
Father in heaven. What a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful privilege to call you our Father. Lord, we've been calling everything else Daddy. We have neglected to spend that time with you that, that is so necessary. We have run running around acting like we have been clothed fully, but we have been naked, Father. We have not realized that we have been without your presence, not just around us, Father, but we want you to be inside of us, Lord. Awaken these dry bones, Lord. Revive us so that we can go out to serve you for the rest of our lives. Father, the world is perishing all around us. And it's our fault, Father, for we have had the knowledge, but we have not had corresponding works. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us, Father. Please help us to redeem the time. Please make us Christians from the inside out. So that the universe can know and understand the power of the gospel. We love you, Lord. We beg of you to teach us to love you more than anything else in this world. And we pray this in the name of Jesus and claim the merits of his holy and most precious blood. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.